This morning's scripture passage is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Again, that's Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. It's a joy to be with you all today. Uh, this passage uh, is a passage about your joy, a passage about where joy is found and how it's found, but to see Christ as this incomparable treasure, uh, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So would you join me as we ask God to move among us this morning? Jesus, we are grateful uh, for your presence among us, that you're here, uh, that you love us, that you're faithful, that your mercies are new every morning. Uh, your steadfast love, Scripture says, is better than life. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The nearness of God is my only good. I pray you'd help us to taste and see those things this morning, that you'd help us to see your nearness, your presence, your love, your kingdom uh, as the object of greatest affection and desire that we would treasure you above all things. And so would you pour out grace in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read that first uh, verse again to you from Matthew 13, verse 44. I want to focus on one particular phrase. And here's Jesus giving this parable to explain to people the nature of his kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. I love that. It's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, and pay attention to this phrase, in his joy. It's in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I'm going to talk about joy, about where joy comes from, about what it looks like, about how we tend to pursue it. We are all, as human beings, always chasing joy. It's designed in us. So a question I just want to start with is where do you go to look for joy? Obviously, there are the sort of like deep foundational things, but what do you tend to go to in your day-to-day -day life thinking, hey, this will give me joy. This will satisfy me. This will make me happy. Maybe it's brunch with some friends on a Sunday in the fall. Uh, maybe it's a Sunday afternoon. You're going to turn on the Broncos-Cowboys game and take a nap and periodically look up and just see if the Bronco Broncos might win, might not. We'll see, but it's the Cowboys, so I hope so. Um, Maybe for you, it's just an evening with some close friends uh, where you can slow down, hang out with some friends, enjoy time together socially. Uh, maybe for you, it's connected to your job, uh, just the, the things you get to do in your job. You feel like you were made for this, you love this work, and when there's a big win or you get to kind of have a breakthrough in your workplace or you close a deal or you kind of see somebody enjoying this product that you've made or this thing you've invested in, maybe that fills you with a sense of joy, satisfaction. 
Uh, maybe it's just participating in culture and being able to kind of create and use your creative abilities to create music or art or something that just brings beauty into the world. Or maybe it's like a, a powder day at Blue Sky Basin and Vail. Anybody waiting for snow? Anybody waiting for snow? A, a nice powder day, first tracks, Blue Sky Basin. Come on. That's fun. Like what, what like kind of lights your heart up? What lights your heart up? Maybe it's to walk through the fall leaves or a time with your kids, just laughing and playing a board game or intimate time with your spouse or a slow evening with a glass of wine and a good book. These are things that our hearts long for and we're, we're kind of always looking for those things. So depending on who you are and how you're wired, different things will kind of make your heart light up. Underneath those sort of behavioral activities, there are foundational human desires that all of us have. We as human beings desire love, affection, acceptance. We want to be known. We want to be loved. We want to be valued. We as human beings desire security and stability of some kind. We desire meaning and purpose to contribute to creating something and making something of the world. Uh, we desire comfort and pleasure and excitement. Maybe we pursue it through a vacation or a recreational activity or whatever it might be. But we long for these things and we are made to. Uh, there's an old mathematician and philosopher named Blaise Pascal who said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, the will of a person, never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even those who hang themselves. The way philosophers talk about this for us as human beings is that we are teleological beings. We are like aimed at a destination. We are moving somewhere. We want to be accomplishing something. We want to be chasing something, and it's in all of us. And this parable today, Jesus is affirming that reality, and what he's doing is helping us see that we are designed for this. We are designed for joy. The question is, where do we find it? Where do we find true, meaningful, incomparable, unshakable joy? And at the kind of heart of this passage, Jesus is saying that he wants you to find incomparable and unshakable joy in his presence and in his kingdom. He is after your joy. I think that's awesome. Just think about that for a moment. The creator of the heavens and the earth wants you to find joy. The question is, where do we look for it? The question is, where is it found? And that question will determine everything about us. And our hearts, as they lean towards this hunger for joy, this searching and striving to find some sense of meaning and satisfaction in life, where we place the object of our affection, where we put our treasure will define everything about us because we are always inclined towards our belief of where joy comes from. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about today. That's the sort of foundational principle underneath what he's going to teach us about the nature of his kingdom from this particular set of parables. And so what I want to do is just take a moment, unpack uh, a little bit of the context around these parables, uh, what's happening in the life of the disciples in this moment, and why Jesus gives this to us, and what that means for us today as we navigate through the lives that we each live. Um, if you're familiar again with where we're at in the story, uh, the disciples have been following Jesus, and they have some sense that he is this one that they've been waiting for and that they've been longing for, but they're feeling around them opposition. They're feeling around them, friends and family members rejecting Jesus, people that they've gone up and said, he's the Messiah. This is so exciting. Other people are like, nah, I don't know. They're not interested or they're kind of interested, but they let it go. Some people think they're nuts. 
Some people think they're crazy and think they're insane for following Jesus and the decisions that they've made to leave all their things behind and leave their jobs behind and leave their nets behind and leave their families behind to follow Jesus. People are saying, what on earth are you doing? And now they had this expectation that the kingdom was going to build momentum, but instead of the kingdom building momentum, they're feeling widespread opposition and rejection. And so Jesus, in this moment, in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus, Jesus has sat before a crowd, and he begins teaching them in parables, and he's teaching them about the nature of his kingdom. But he's doing it through these kind of cryptic stories for a reason. One is a lot of people, as they learn who Jesus is, they're not excited about what he's saying. They're not excited about the authority he claims to have and the power he's wielding and how it's challenging the systems that they've built their identity and their satisfaction and their joy in. You have that both in the religious community and in the Roman community. And you have other people who are just believing and who are amazed and in awe, astonished at who he is and what he's like and are compelled by him. And so Jesus in this moment is speaking in a way that's going to bring the stories of his kingdom in a way that conceals it to those who aren't interested, that aren't committed, that aren't all in for Jesus. But for those who are, it's going to make sense of the world for them in a way that will fuel them and help them grow as resilient disciples in a really complex time. And that's where I think it connects with us, that we need to grow as resilient disciples in a really complex moment. And it's a parable like this that Jesus uses to bring us into the beauty and the goodness of his kingdom, to cultivate within us not a begrudging resilience, but a joyful resilience, a hopeful resilience, a resilience that knows that we are fighting to experience our deepest joy in the presence of God and in the arrival of his kingdom. And so Jesus then gives these two parables, um, two parables, and they're on the heels of some parables about as the news of the kingdom comes and it's kind of landing on different people, there's different responses, and it's making, Jesus has made sense of that, hey, a lot of people are going to reject, a lot of people are going to be disinterested, a lot of people are going to walk away, but that seed is going to land on some hearts and it's going to grow and bear fruit, and this is how the kingdom's going to move. And in the middle of that, there are going to be crowds, and within those crowds of people, there are going to be some who grow up and walk away, some who are opposed to the message, and, and some who are deep followers, and you don't need to sort that out. You don't need to judge who's right and who's wrong, who's in it. You don't have to take the hat of judgment and sit on that seat and declare who's all in and who's not. You just stay faithful to me and trust me. I will sort it all out. Just stay faithful. Live alongside people. Show them my love. Show them my nearness. Stay faithful. But he's not wanting us to be motivated towards faithfulness as like this avoidance of judgment. That's not his deepest heart. His deepest heart is that we'd be motivated by this invitation to joy. And that's where we get here in the two stories. And so I want to read these stories, unpack some of the nature of them, and think about what it means for us. The first of the two stories, which have this similar theme, is a story about uh, a person going through a field. And so I want you to hear it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So the image is of a person that's on a journey through uh, someday, and it doesn't give a lot of details about what it is, but you can start imagining he's walking, maybe he's journeying from one destination to another, which would have been common. And on that journey, he's going through a field, and he stumbles upon a treasure. In the ancient world, they didn't have secure banks the way that we do, right? When I think about my money, I think I, I automatic deposit into a bank and it magically arrives. I never see it. It just like goes, I get an email, hey, your paycheck was deposited. And then when I need money, it's like there, right? It's like something about the FDIC makes that secure. I don't understand. Some of you are financial people. You get it more than I do. I'm like, FDIC, my money's going to be there. I have no idea what that means. Um, 
But if you were in an ancient world where there had been kind of uh, people groups that had come and occupied you and oppressed you and challenged you and stole your goods and pillaged you and plundered your family and driven you out and you've been displaced and you've had to leave for your safety and then you come back, what do you do with your valuable possessions? Well, you could put them in a jar or in a box and bury them somewhere. Keep them safe. And when you need them, you can go to where you know that they're buried. But what if you get displaced or what if you die or what if you've had to go for some other reason to leave Uh, In the ancient world, there are stories of treasures being hidden in fields with incredible value. And that's the sort of image that Jesus is tapping into. An image that you could be walking through a field and you could find, stumble across like a a part of a jar that's sticking up out of the dirt. And you kick it and you hit it and you kind of look at it and you pull it out and you realize, oh my goodness, this is a treasure of incomparable worth. This changes my life. If I can just figure out how to kind of righteously get this. You're like, why wouldn't he just take it? Well, it's like, well, he wants to be righteous. So he hides it, you know, uh, and uh, buys the field. And then it's like, how is that moral? Right? That's one of the questions that a lot of people ask. Is this just? Like, shouldn't he be told the owner of the field or whoever? Like, hey, do you know there's a treasure in your field? Um, It's not trying to answer that question. He's just trying to talk about when you stumble across something, when as you're going through life, you stumble across something of incomparable worth, it immediately changes everything. You now want to reorient the whole of your life towards this new treasure. And so that's what it speaks of. And so the man goes and he kind of takes all of the life he's built. Maybe he had had kind of a multi-generational home that he had that had been handed down from his father and his father's father for generations. He had lived in this home. Maybe he had a job, an occupation. Maybe he had family heirlooms that he had. He's like, all these things that were valuable to me, sell them all with joy. Leave them all because of the value of this treasure is so incomparable. It so kind of supersedes all of the things I've ever accumulated and accomplished in my whole life that it is a no-brainer to leave those things behind to buy this field. So if you just put this in like common day terms, imagine for a moment, uh, you know, you're going through life and and you've worked hard, Uh, you're kind of starting a a business and you've been working hard to raise capital to start this business and you've been a business plan and you've worked on all these things and finally it's getting rolling and and you're starting to kind of make some groundwork and you have a family and you've been working to get into a home which is hard in Denver and so you finally are getting into a home and you're trying to fix up the home and, and you're involved in that and you're trying to kind of establish community and friendship and you're kind of living all of your life trying to make life work and trying to find joy and trying to do the things that you want to do. You've saved up some money, you're going on good vacations. And, and you've kind of been saving up for another vacation. And then finally, some weekend, things have been really heavy and you get a VRBO in the mountains and you're like, I just need some space to take a deep breath. And you go to the mountains and you got this VRBO and you've got your dog and you're walking through the field kind of in the mountains and you sit down for a minute, you're just taking a deep breath and you see your dog rummaging over in some brush and just kind of like digging around. And you're like, what are you doing? You know, like, come on, you know, the dog's digging. What are you eating at? And as you go over, you, you see this little glimmer, this something sh- shiny over there and it kind of catches your eye. And so you kind of bend down and brush it off. And all of a sudden you see this little streak of gold in a rock on the ground. You're like, man, you kind of brush off a little more and it's this vein of gold. You think, you don't know. So you Google it real quick. You're like, what does a vein of gold look like? You know, because... Uh, uh, you don't know, you know, I don't know what's, what's real and what's not, but you like find out, oh my gosh, this is, this is legit. Like this is a deposit that is so valuable. And so I acknowledge the lack of like moral character in what I'm about to say. So just hang, hang with me. So, so then you're like, uh, you go home and you talk to your family and you're like, it's time to sell it all. 
sell the business that you've been living your life to kind of create, sell the house, sell the goods, sell the possessions, get rid of the kind of savings for that vacation you wanted to take, sell it all. And let's buy that VRBO. And that VRBO owner is like, man, that's a nice price. You're like, oh, I know, I'm a generous person, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and you buy the field and you gain in that moment something of incomparable value. And the image here is that in this moment, you encountered something that makes everything you've been living your life for seem like not significant. Everything you've been trying to build, everything you've been trying to accumulate, all the ways you've been chasing after life and trying to establish meaning and identity and significance and acceptance and love, all the ways you've been steering your life towards that, something in this moment changed everything. And to buy that field, to acquire and kind of take hold of this treasure, it means turning from the things you've been chasing your whole life, turning from the things you've been building, changing your value set, changing your value system and saying, I'm going a different way from here on out from here on out. And then the second parable unpacks really the same exact theme with one major kind of nuance. And the, the nuance here is that this person is out searching for the valuable things. If in the first story of the man and the treasure, he stumbles upon it as he's living his life, this merchant is searching for value. He says he's searching for fine pearls. He's out in his life, using his life to kind of go find valuable things. And he goes from village to village, town to town, city to city, looking and trying to go through these cities and say, what's valuable? Looking for valuable pearls where he'll acquire those pearls and kind of sell them and trade them. And he's been doing this for a long time. He's searching and searching, this sort of endless search. It's just a part of his identity is one searching for valuable pearls. And then one day he finds one single pearl that is so valuable, so incomparably valuable, that he sells everything he had acquired to buy that pearl. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom's like. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody who stumbles upon a treasure that changes everything. And though it might require you leaving certain things, though it might require changing your life, though it might require kind of adjusting and readjusting your value systems and your priorities, though it might require surrendering things you've valued and cared about for a long, long time, it is worth it. And you do it in your joy because of the surpassing greatness of this treasure. Joy. Jesus wants your joy and he wants it to be found in him and in his kingdom. And so what I want to do is just say, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to see the kingdom of heaven as this incomparable treasure? And what does it mean to joyfully leave everything that's holding us back from experiencing the goodness of Christ in his kingdom? What does that mean? What does it mean to see the kingdom of heaven as this incomparable treasure? I want to talk about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? I don't know if you're like me. I remember growing up and my conception of heaven was like, um, you'd kind of go to heaven when you die and you'd wear some white robe and you'd have a harp, you know? I think that's how you hold a harp. I don't know, you know? And uh, you'd have a harp and we'd just be around Jesus and singing all the time. And you're like, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Me too. Yeah, aren't you? You know, like, let's be honest. That doesn't feel exciting. I mean, you might, if that's what you think of as heaven, you're like, but aren't we supposed to be excited about that? Like playing a harp in a white robe around Jesus all the time? Like that's not the biblical image of the kingdom of heaven. And so we like talk ourselves up, oh yeah, I'm, that's incomparably valuable. You know, I hope life is good too though, because I don't know, you know, I don't know. Am I the only person that's felt that? Like maybe you were kind of immediately had a more robust view of heaven than I grew up with. But for me, it was a very shallow view, future only, transient only. 
ethereal only, singing only. You know, it's like, uh, which I'm all for singing. I'm looking at John, love singing, love being here singing with you. Uh, but it's like, that's, I don't know, something about that. Well, we have to, we have to think of what's this image of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is far more robust, far more beautiful than that, far more captivating, far more, far more transformative. So if you're trying to get an image of what the kingdom of, like, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's the same phrase as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a uh, uh, kingdom of heaven is most fundamentally the reign of God where everything and everyone is submitted to the good reign of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. And the image in the Bible, the best image to kind of get at it is the image from Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, the whole thing is shaped up to give you this picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, the reign of God. And so we talk about Genesis 1 and 2 pretty well every week, and that's on purpose because it helps us make sense of our design as human beings, how we're made to function. So if you imagine this king in Genesis 1 and 2, Moses has presented God as this king that's just giving these decrees. He's speaking, and everything is obeying. He's speaking things into existence, and he's assigning function. He's creating things, and he's giving them their function. And every time he does, creates something and gives it function, purpose, meaning. He says, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And at the end of this creation work, he looks at all that he's made. He looks at this kingdom where his word has come out and it has created. And what it has created is really, really good. It's a world where humanity lives in harmony with their creator where they know his love, they know his security, they know his nearness, they know that he is the sufficient one. In our dependence, we can rely on him. In our weakness, we can trust in him. In our lack of wisdom, we can listen to him. In our longing for love, we can run to him. In our longing for rest, he's there. In our need for comfort, he's the one. We know that. Humanity in harmony with God, but also in humanity in harmony with one another, where we value one another. We see the differences that we have, and we honor those differences. We respect them, we value them, and we take the things that we have, and we sacrificially use them to serve and love others. Other people do the same for us, and we live with equity and justice and love, and we contribute in culture-making, and we make something of the world, and we use the gifts and the vision and the knowledge God's given us to make something of the world, to build culture and civilization and city and to do meaningful work where we take the gifts that God's given us and we contribute to the common good and the flourishing of humanity, where we're in harmony with creation itself, caring for the animal kingdom, caring for creation and this beautiful kind of like experience of creation, humanity as this culminating kind of created person to bear the image of God, walking with him in harmony with one another. This is what we're designed for. This is the kingdom, and you long for it. You long for it. It's flourishing life. It's the world as it ought to be. That's the kingdom of God. Heaven and earth are one. The presence of God in our lives here on earth, like this one unified, harmonious existence. It's what we were made for. That's the kingdom. And we know that the story turns in Genesis 3, where humanity, for the first time ever, a created thing, rejects the reign of the king. Say for the first time in the biblical story, humanity rejects the reign of the king, and we have now broken the kingdom. The Bible word there is sin. Uh, we use words like rebellion. Uh, there's, a, there's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. who has a whole kind of like article about this, but he, what he describes it like this rebellion as is the vandalization of shalom. That we took this flourishing world and we vandalized it. 
We breached our relationship with God. We wrecked our relationships with one another and we brought brokenness in the whole world. And all of humanity has continued in this plight, vandalizing shalom, rending this beautiful kingdom existence. And so the whole story of creation, the whole story of the Bible is what God is doing to restore the kingdom. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's sharing the good news about the kingdom of God being at hand, the kingdom of heaven is here, what he's saying is, I have come to set the world right again, to restore everything that's been broken. And the way that he does it most fundamentally is through his death and resurrection as he pays the penalty for the fundamental issue, which is human rebellion, shedding his blood, forgiving us, but also through his resurrection, giving us new life where we can be reconciled to the presence of God, where we can be transformed and giving us the hope that there will be a day when he makes all things right. And so when you think about the kingdom of heaven in this passage, Jesus has all of this in mind, that what I'm doing right now is I'm coming to restore everything that's been broken. And I'm inviting you to experience that firsthand in your own heart and in your own life and to be a part of what I'm going to do to transform the whole world. And when your heart lays a hold of that, it changes everything. Everything. Most fundamentally, when we think about what does that mean for me right now, Jesus is reconciling us to the presence of God where we can find once again the love we long for, the acceptance, the peace, the hope where we can experience security and rest and comfort and pleasure. All the things that we spend our life chasing the things of this world, thinking this will be enough and that'll be enough. And maybe if I just get a little more, the next thing or the next level of the thing I thought was going to satisfy me, I just need the next level of it. And so we're just trying to level up in life, take the next step, kind of move to the next relationship. And we're always moving from thing to thing as if created things can satisfy us and they can't. And so when you hear that Jesus came to reconcile us, to the presence of God and to restore everything that's been broken and to give our soul what our souls so desperately long for. When that lights up within you and God gives you eyes to see the beauty of Christ in his kingdom, it's game changer. All the things I've been chasing, all the things I've been running for, all the things I've been trying to kind of seek and acquire and grasping after this like treadmill of life are just like always a little bit further. Every time we run after those things, when you feel the emptiness, this is a moment for you to say, joyfully, no more. I don't need to run that race anymore. I can turn and I can find all the things my heart's longed for in Jesus and in his wisdom for life and the way that he lives and the hope that he alone can bring. This is the kingdom. I want to read uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of my favorite lines, it's from The Weight of Glory. It's a little short book. You could pick it up, read it. It's online, I'm sure, common domain probably, hopefully. Um, it's, it, to me, it has, it has met me in so many times, in so many ways, including this week preparing for this message, just going through it again, just like, ah, oh, this is, what a reminder. And here's one of his, in one of his opening paragraphs, here's what he said. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us, uh, promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Uh, the image that Lewis is giving us is like this 
child who has nothing and he's in the slums and he just kind of, all there is is mud. And we can make something out of mud and just playing and having fun. And somebody says, hey, I want to invite you to Southern California, Orange County, Huntington Beach. I'm going to take you to the South Beaches of Florida. We're going to go to the Panhandle. We're going to go to Cabo. or We're going to go to Hawaii. And, and the kid's like, no, I'm good with these mud pies. It's like, you don't understand what was, what was just kind of offered to you. Like, you, you don't know. You don't know. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is when you see what is being offered to you and this invitation from Jesus saying, come follow me. Come follow me. Walk with me. I'm making the world right again. Follow me. Turn from those things and come here. When it lights up in you, it should feel like leaving the mud, kind of like the mud pies in the slum to like running to like a beach vacation with the God of the universe. Like this is, this is something that ought to light us up. But it's hard. It's hard. We struggle to believe. We keep chasing things. And so what does that look like? What does it look like? to actually turn from the things of this world, the things we tend to seek for joy and satisfaction in, and to find them in Jesus. I, I want to read to you two stories, uh, two little, little kind of like anecdotes from, uh, one is Jim Carrey from the Golden Globes. I've read it before a few years ago, but I find it just really insightful. And the other is from our, you know, arch nemesis, Tom Brady. Um, and so here's, here's Jim Carrey. This is at the Golden Globes years ago. Uh, Jim Carrey was introduced to kind of uh, give this award out. He was going to be presenting the award. And the announcer introduced him as Jim Carrey, two-time Golden Globe winning actor. And, uh, and so Jim Carrey says, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. And you feel this moment. Again, think about the audience. The audience is all actors and actresses pretty well. All people that have given their lives to this and probably some healthy actors and actresses, but probably a lot of people that are finding their identity and being enough, being the best, getting the award, being seen and esteemed. And that's the audience. He says, he says no, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. It's like feel the air getting sucked out of the room. <laughs> like the thing that they most want, right? He's like, I've done it twice and it, it's not enough. Should a third, maybe a third would be enough. He's like, at some point you gotta say, stop kidding yourself. We should know better. And then here's uh, Tom Brady. This is in 2005. Uh, Tom Brady, he's a quarterback, he used to play, you know, for the Patriots. I think he's still in the league. Um, <laughs> he had won at this point three Super Bowls, uh, a mere three. Uh, and he said this, this is with Steve Croft in 60 Minutes. He said, you know, there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Like, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. Like, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. For me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. 
I'm 27, and what else is there for me? And Steve Croft says, well, what's the answer? He goes, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think Jesus would say, I am the answer. I am the answer. C.S. Lewis famously said in in his chapter on hope and mere Christianity, he said, if we find in ourselves, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Like there are longings in you that will never be fulfilled in your attempt to kind of like acquire, accumulate, do the next, get the better, level up, upgrade the lifestyle. It will never work. And some of you are young enough that you're surrounded by people in your same age demographic and you still bought into that. For most people, as you work through life, you begin to realize, like you get that thing, like maybe there is family and family's a gift and I love my family. Family doesn't satisfy your deepest longing. You think if I just got that job or just got that house or just could kind of do those kind of recreational activities or go on those vacations that all those other people seem to be going on, then it would be enough. And we hear stories like this about Tom Brady. You hear stories like this about Jim Carrey. All these people in their fields and their realms kind of have arrived and achieved and they're saying it's not enough. And you know, we know, we know. But we keep buying into that lie a little more Next thing, a little better, and we stay on that treadmill. We, we continue in the rat race, and we feel pain. And then at some point, you meet, reach your kind of midlife, and you have a crisis. They call it the midlife crisis. Uh, it's like so, like, cliche. Uh, because you hit that point where you realize all the things I've been trying to find meaning in life in don't satisfy. They don't satisfy. So maybe if I ditch my family and start a new family. Maybe if I just change my job. Maybe if I just get a different house or maybe if I just kind of do this a little different or do this and we just keep rearranging our lives thinking it's going to be enough. I'm not saying all of those things are inherently wrong. Leaving your family is inherently wrong, for the record. For the record. Um, But not all of those things are inherently wrong. But the way I've imagined it, in our culture, what we do, uh, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor that talks about the imminent frame, that we're seeking in the secular world, we're seeking meaning and purpose inside the imminent frame. And so imminent is this near right here. And so you're talking about material, tangible, touchable, like something you can lay hold of, and immediate and temporal. And so the way I've imagined this, like this imminent frame is like, there might be transcendent, there might be a God, there might be spirituality, these things might matter, and, 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 and maybe there's some relevance, but for my day-to-day search for meaning and purpose and life and love and satisfaction and joy, it's irrelevant. If I'm going to find joy, it's going to be in the things I can kind of accumulate and achieve and accomplish and gather around me right here, right now. And so the image that, I, that I've like just thought about a number of times, like you're building your life inside this cardboard box. And inside this cardboard box is all of the things that you can kind of do in this world. You, you can have a family and you can have a job and, and you can have recreational activities and you can have experiences and you can go out and have like friendships and, and do these kind of different things. And you're trying to like make life work. And so you like dress the box up as best you can. And you're like, this is going to be it. Like I finally got my box looking good. And you just feel the cracks in the box. You feel the pain and it's not satisfying. You're like, let me just rearrange, uh, just need the next phase of family relationship. Maybe I need to be married or I need kids and that'll, you know, and so you kind of try that and uh, maybe it's not being fulfilled the way you want it to be, or maybe it is and it's not satisfying you. Like maybe it's the job situation. So you go into the job and rewrite instead of this job, I'm going to do this job. And we're just like in this box trying to like find meaning and joy and satisfaction and it won't work. 
It won't work. We find cracks in the box. All these things are broken. All of them are corrupted by sin, and none of them were designed to fulfill our deepest desire and our longings. And it's precisely in the disillusionment of those moments that you begin to meet with God. You have an opportunity to meet with God. That's why he says, Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are saying, my box isn't turning out. Blessed are those who are saying, this have regrets and pain. I have longings and, and brokenness. I have shame I carry and guilt. I have challenges that I'm just like, what is there? And Jesus breaks in, like through those cracks in the box, outside of the eminent frame, with this voice, come to me. The kingdom of heaven is the treasure. Let that stuff go and follow me. And when that breaks into your life with like a, a moment of belief and awareness, it's like, yes, here on out, I'm going with Jesus. I'm going to run after Jesus. I'm going to chase after Jesus. And all of those things that aren't inherently bad, they all have their place. But, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He is the God who made me in whom I find my deepest delight. And so we run hard after him. And so what, what does that look like? What does that look like day to day for us to be people that are saying, I'm going to turn from the, the sort of rat race of life, from the treadmill and that sort of endless seeking and searching. I, I love in the image of the pearls that it's like one pearl after another, just seeking valuable things. And at some moment you find this incomparable, incomparably valuable pearl and it's like the search is over. You don't have to keep doing that. We don't have to keep doing that. We don't. We can go all in with Jesus and surrender our striving, surrender all the things we're trying to build our identity and meaning, all the ways we're trying to find affection, security, love, rest, joy in. We can say, I surrender these things and I'm going to run hard after you. What would that look like? One thing is it really would look like a decision. It would look like something about the message of Jesus. Even if you don't taste the fullness of the joy, even if you don't kind of feel the goodness of it, and that's why I love this kind of invitation to discipleship. It's apprenticing. Like there are times, the parable gives it this immediate sense of that's where joy is found. But as you follow Jesus, as you experience his presence, as you walk in his ways, the joy and the sort of, dis it like breaks you out of this like toxic fog that is like duping us. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you can see like, wow, I was bought into all sorts of like really unhealthy lies about the world and about life. And the more you follow Jesus and kind of free yourselves of the sort of like the things that are like the vines that are on your leg and the things that are wrapping themselves around you and you kind of get out of this suffocating weeds to use the parable of the sower and the seeds and you're ripping these weeds off you and you're saying, I'm, I'm going after Jesus. The more you walk that way, the more the depth of joy the peace, the security, the love, the acceptance, the freedom. Oh, it's, it's incomparably valuable. There's nothing like it. Freedom, joy, satisfaction. There's nothing like it. And so you have to say, is there something about that that is compelling me? And if there is, you need to decide, I'm going with Jesus. I'm going to go with him, and I know that's going to mean letting go of things, but for the sake of joy, I will let them go. For the sake of the, the treasure that is incomparably valuable, I'm going to let them go and say, I want to decide to turn from these things and to trust in Jesus. And that might mean some real significant things for you. The things that have oriented your whole life, the things that have governed your decisions and set the trajectory for the way you live and the things you're trying to build meaning out of, it might mean some of that you're going to need to let go of. 
For these disciples, it did. For the disciples, it meant actually kind of leaving the nets and leaving their family and leaving all the things that their culture thought gave them identity and meaning, turning from those and going all in with Jesus. And Jesus is saying to those who have made that decision, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's so worth it. Yes, I know that people are rejecting you. Yes, I know your coworkers think you're crazy. Yes, I know that you had to leave those kind of stable environments and you had to leave your sources of income. He's saying this to his disciples, but it is worth it. Because the kingdom I'm bringing is incomparably valuable and it's unshakable. It's unshakable. So you have to make a decision. If you're making somebody who's made that decision or maybe even renewing, like, you know what? I had made that decision, but if I look at my life, I've drifted back into the sort of, I've got caught back up with the flow of the world. I got, pack, I got caught up in the flow of the culture and I'm drifting away from Jesus again. And maybe it's time today to just renew to Jesus. I want to be all in with you. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to seek you. I want to walk with you. I want to follow your ways and trust in your wisdom and, and live in your value system. I want this. Well, then you need to rearrange your priorities. You really need to rearrange your priorities because so much of us have our kind of day-to-day -day life still oriented around kind of worldly value systems that aren't leading us towards Jesus. And so the way we think about recreation, the way we think about rest, the way we think about our evenings and our mornings, the way we think about our vocation, the way we think about community and friendship needs to be rearranged a little bit. And I'm not going to presume to tell you what that needs to look like for you, but to say, what, what if, if the kingdom of heaven and the presence of God and the wisdom of Jesus and the way of Jesus leads to this incomparable treasure, this value and this joy, what could I change to head that way? What could I change to put before me again and again and again an image of the kingdom and a vision for the kingdom to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to spend time with Jesus and remember his love for me and walk in him and ask him for wisdom and strength for my day. I'm going to go to work today. I'm going to pray that God will give me a sacrificial spirit in my work, that I'll do the work not to climb my way up a ladder, but to love and serve people, to love and serve people. Or I'm going to go into my home or my family or with my roommates, and I'm going to do my best to follow the wisdom of Jesus who says the greatest among us are those who lay down their lives as servants. And I'm going to seek to serve because Jesus said that's greatness in his kingdom. And I'm going to live that kind of way. And that means a new decision about the way I think about dinner, a new decision about the way I think about my job, a new decision about how I show up in that relationship. It means rearranging your priorities. And last, it might and it likely will mean surrendering things that are holding you back. Letting go of things. There's a famous parable in Matthew 19 uh, where Jesus is with a kind of a rich young man. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, what does the law say? And he's like, well, you know, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the commandments, that kind of thing. And Jesus, and Jesus is like, yep, go do that. And he says, well, I've done all this. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all of your possessions. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. And he says, that young man went away sad. Just compare that to the joy here. He went away sad because he had great possessions and didn't want to let him go. Uh, there are times where Jesus calls us to let go of things. There might be a relationship. You've longed for a relationship, and you're in a relationship, and, uh, and you know it's not healthy for you. You're dating someone, and you know it's not healthy, but you've longed for this. And it's a good desire. It's a good longing, but you know it's not helping you grow in your love for Jesus. Maybe there are values in that relationship, things in that relationship that you know are not healthy. It's scary to let go. It's hard. And maybe in your job, what your job is now requiring of you is leading you to a way of life that is crushing you. You're struggling to be the kind of 
spouse you want to be, the kind of parent you want to be, the kind of person you want to be. It's crushing you. But man, it's like you arrived. You wanted that. You got that. And now it's suffocating you. You might have to let it go. Uh, Maybe there are things that you're thinking about as you're trying to live your life and you're like, man, you're obsessing over uh, getting a house or the next house or kind of like something like that. And you're like, man, I need to do it because of the economy and what's happening. And and getting a house isn't bad. Having a home isn't bad. Getting a new house, not bad. But you are obsessing where it's like all of your spare time is Zillow. All of your spare time is kind of looking and shopping and and like you, it it is not healthy for you right now. None of these things, that would be legalistic for me to say, you can't get a new house. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying you need to evaluate what is holding me back from Jesus right now, from finding in him my deepest desire, my greatest joy, an incomparable treasure. And there are so many things. It can be habits, the way you wake up in the morning, the way you spend your evenings. There are things that we have to let go of and surrender. But we don't do it as begrudging people. We do it for joy. Because Jesus did it for us for joy. In Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endure the cross. He bore our shame, he shed his blood, and he did it for joy. He sacrificed his life to establish a kingdom and to welcome you into a kingdom that is unshakable. Unshakable, and he did it for joy. So what would it mean for us to look at Jesus and respond to his love, his sacrifice, his joyful surrender with that same sort of joyful surrender and say, I'm going to leave all these things and I'm with Jesus from here on out. I love this line from Martin Luther, his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Here's the truth. His kingdom is forever. Let's be a people that turn to Jesus, turn away from these things that hold us back, and for joy we surrender those things to run after Jesus, the one who can give us the kingdom and the love and security and the rest that we all long for. Let's pray. Jesus, we come right now in need of you. And so would you pour out your grace upon us? Would you speak into our lives if, if there are people here who have never decided, I'm going all in with Jesus. I want to follow him. I've been half in, half out. I've been kind of keeping my feet in the things of this world, trying to chase joy over there, kind of like semi-interested in Jesus. God, I pray that you would help those people right now feel a, a vision of your kingdom that would be so compelling, that it would be like, enough is enough. I'm going with Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. For those of us that we need to rearrange aspects in our life to pursue him, to pursue you, to walk with you, to trust in you, to live for you, would you help us to do so? Uh, Would you shine light on specific areas uh, that we need to rearrange and adjust in our own life? And where we need to surrender hard things, would you help us to do it with joy? Help us to do it for joy. And so Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now in our individual lives and give us a vision to see the incomparable value of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.